Before we start, I have a serious question for you. Do you think that Marilyn Monroe's death was a conspiracy? I don't personally. I think, like, the Kennedys treated her like shit. They sure did. Probably had an affair with JFK, but I don't think they killed her. Yeah, it ain't a mystery. Baby, not to me. I mean, she what? She OD'd, right? Yeah. She had a pretty shitty life. I can see, like, that being a thing. Like, there's a lot of people who, you know, conspiracy people are like, oh, yeah, they they were murdered. Do you guys know the journalist Gary Webb who wrote about the CIA crack epidemic? Yeah. He shot himself in the head, but everyone's like, oh, he got two bullets in the head. That must be CIA. But one of them was like, he missed. You know, it went through the side of his face. Which happens. Yeah. So Monroe and stuff like that. Lots of people kill themselves. It's America. She also, I think her only husband who was nice to her was poor Joe DiMaggio. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking, who was the one who was married to Mickey Hargitay? Uh, Jane Mansfield. Yeah, maybe the CIA did that one. Uh, the satanic cabal in the government. I'm pretty sure a scarf and a convertible are to blame for that one. No, it was the connection to LaVey. It was the satanic <laughs> deep state. <laughs> the satanic deep state. <laughs> Welcome to Twitch of the Death Nerve, a cult movie podcast that takes a deep dive into a different topic each episode. Our wide-ranging discussions will touch on genre culture and the history of psychotronic cinema i'm charles i'm sam and we're honored to have joining us today our first return guest the brilliant philadelphia-based journalist and independent researcher robert scavarla hey yo (laughs) (laughs) Rob, (laughs) rob joined us previously on a discussion of cryptozoology secret societies and three totally whacked out bigfoot movies and the, uh, the bonus episode we recorded on UFOs and the occult, it's an all-timer. But coming on our show to cut it up about Yetis and the Sasquatch is small potatoes compared to some of your more recent accomplishments, which include a guest spot on the wildly popular Truanon podcast to discuss the history and modern applications of COINTELPRO, as well as an insanely entertaining article in the newly revived rock and roll print magazine Cream, that connects the band Credence Clearwater Revival to U.S. intelligence, offshore bank accounts, and some very shady people. It's a fascinating read, and your time on True Anon was one of the best podcast hours of last year. And I could probably go on for an hour rambling about all your seemingly endless string of accomplishments, but uh, I'll end it there and just say, damn, bro, congrats on all your success. We're so proud of you. Honored to have you back. No, no, no. Keep talking. I like when people, <laughs> I like when people say good things about me. We right. can keep going. We have a, a lot to talk about, <laughs> a, a lot to get to, so let's not waste any more time with niceties. <laughs> yeah, All let's right. get to the exploding heads. Yeah. <laughs> well, just one. The, the reason why we have Robert on the program today is to discuss the myriad of ways that the assassination of John F. Kennedy has been represented in popular culture both at home in the United States and perhaps more interesting, the, the ways it's portrayed abroad. But before we get into our more film-centric discussion, let's first turn our attention to history. Now, I, I have to admit right off the jump that I've never particularly been compelled by JFK conspiracy theories. I mean, as a younger person who came of age in the wake of 9-11, most of the conspiratorial oxygen in the room was devoted to, you know, George Bush and Dick Cheney, the Iraq War, that kind of shit, you know. All the bad guys. Yeah. I mean, JFK was kind of like, that's my dad's conspiracy theory, you know. I've never really been too into it, so I'm kind of in the dark on a lot of this stuff. Uh, Rob, can you walk us through what happened on that day in Dallas? 
I mean, I can give you an idea of what happened. I don't think anyone actually knows what happened. But it's interesting you make that connection to 9-11 because there's a great quote from the writer Norman Mailer in a documentary that came out in the late 2000s called Oswald's Ghost, where he sort of touches on the two being very similar, mentioning the idea that the JFK assassination, in his words, had removed God's sanction from America, this idea of a loss of innocence. And he directly compared it to 9-11 in the sense that the kind of pain and confusion the country was feeling in the aftermath of the assassination was similar to what happened um, after 9-11. Because I think we're all roughly the same age, and many of our listeners will probably be of the same age. We all remember what it was like when 9-11 happened. And it's that similar kind of where were you moment when JFK was shot. Everyone knows where they were. For many of us, it was in high school watching on, you know, those little carts that they rolled oh, in. Hell yeah. Yeah. So we were all watching as the planes hit the two towers. So the idea of the two being intertwined is, I think, a powerful comparison because they're both about this idea of loss of innocence. But to the assassination itself, the basic idea of what you need to know is that JFK's motorcade went through Dealey Plaza in Dallas one day, November 22nd, 1963, and allegedly a guy named Lee Harvey Oswald domed the president. (laughs) Yeah, he got off a fucking solid shot. A couple of solid shots if you believe the official story. Why why did he get domed? Well, let's kind of assume for the sake of argument that it wasn't necessarily just Lee Harvey Oswald. It was, you know... A shooter in the grassy knoll. Something like that. Many different things. There's sure. lots of theories. Why did it even happen? I mean, so yeah, going back a few years, I think personally it happened because of Cuba. If you follow the chain of events from when JFK was elected president to the time of his assassination, Cuba figures prominently into many of the different stories and plots that were happening. For anyone who was not aware, when JFK was in the Senate and then later ran for president in 1960 against Nixon, he was a hawk. What that means is he was very much like, I'm a cold warrior, we're going to fight Russia. And in the 60 election, he actually ran to the right of Nixon on the subject of Cuba, Soviet Union. Um, nuclear That's Armament. crazy. Yeah, it's really crazy when you think about it. But the thing that I think a lot of people have a problem dealing with is Americans aren't good with the notion of things that don't exist in binaries. So it's either he is or he isn't. Whereas what we know from history, people change over time. Um, Presidents, political figures, activists, some people travel good paths. They go from, you know, dark to light and sometimes the opposite direction. In the case of JFK, what I would argue is that he, he was a hawk, but he probably never fully became a dove, although he was trending in that direction. A dove meaning somebody who's anti-war? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So before JFK was actually elected under the previous administration, they had authorized an invasion of Cuba using a group of Cuban exiles known as Brigade 2506. This was in the wake of a revolution in Cuba, justifiable, where Fidel Castro overthrew the previous dictator Fulgencio Batista. At the time, Cuba was kind of like the center of all of like the bad stuff that was going on in the Caribbean. The government let it go because a lot of the criminal elements that were in Cuba, Meyer Lansky, Santos Traficante, all of these people who were involved in those running... Those were our guys. Those were our guys, yeah. So we used some of those people. Like Lansky helped us bust up the German-American Bund. And a lot of other people who were involved with organized crime, they had connections to intelligence prior to the 1960s. So... In that period, we used Cuba as sort of like, this was the little playground for all of those guys. And then Castro overthrew that, and a lot of people were not happy. So I guess my next question is one that I, 
I feel like I know the answer to this, but sometimes whenever someone, whenever I hear about it, it always like something else gets illuminated. So I, I want to ask, what was the Bay of Pigs? So the Bay of Pigs was going to be the invasion that we were staging. Now, there's debate over how it would have gone down. The idea was that we were training these right-wing exiles because primarily they were people who had either backed uh, Batista or, you know, they were people who owned plantations in the country or they were people who generally were not good. That's why they fled. So the Bay of Pigs was authorized under the prior administration and in the course of organizing it, you can believe a number of different things. Either the CIA believed it was going to overtake Cuba, or more likely, they set it up so that when these guys invaded, it wasn't going to go off the way it was expected, and JFK was going to have to escalate the situation. So that could mean a full invasion using the United States military. It could mean providing additional resources. What ultimately happened was they asked for additional air support, and JFK refused. So the Brigade 2506 failed. And in the immediate aftermath of that, that was a black eye on the face of the United States. But mostly a black eye on the face of the intelligence agencies that were kind of running the whole show. Right. The guy who was in charge of the CIA at the time, Alan Dulles, he was someone who, you know, figures into a lot of conspiratorial lore. If you believe certain people, and there's a lot of evidence to back this up, but there was Operation Sunshine at the end of World War II, where we were actually going to probably let some Nazis surrender and let them get off with, you know, a little slap on the wrist. Well, we basically did. Yeah. For many of them, yes. Yeah. But it was going to be in a more overt and official capacity rather than like, you know, sneaking people out or interfering with the Nuremberg trials the way we did. Yeah, which is, it's like it gets the CIA off to such a clear start of yeah. who they are and what their goals are. But in the immediate aftermath of the Bay of Pigs, what happened was Cuba was like, okay, we killed a couple of these guys, but we have, I think, like a thousand or a hundred, I forget the exact numbers. We have these hostages. What we want is actually very small. What we want are construction trucks because of the embargoes and sanctions that are on our country right now because of you. But the right-wing elements in the government and the CIA in particular were like, nah, we're not going to do that. That's so funny that he's like, listen, you can save all these people's lives. With some trucks. trucks. Yeah, we want a fucking bulldozer over here. And they're like, yeah, you know, that's a price a little too high. So uh, Castro then was like, okay, just give us food. Even then, for some people, that was too much. So after the Bay of Pigs, JFK fired Alan Dulles, and he did a clearing out of a number of people in government. This is allegedly when he said, I'm going to scatter the CIA into a million different pieces. Yeah. The next guy to come into power was a man named John McCone. In the course of the negotiations with Cuba here, JFK was working through intermediaries because he didn't trust his National Security Council. He didn't trust the CIA. So he was working through outside parties to try and set this up. McCone later admitted he was planning, he had considered, you know, not going through with the plan to trade food for hostages, and he was thinking of initiating another paramilitary action of some kind. So there were lots of people who were not happy about JFK even negotiating. And then you get to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which admittedly JFK is partially to blame for, but JFK de-escalates the situation because you have his National Security Council, which had people like Curtis LeMay, who was an insane right-wing Air Force general who wanted to engage nuclear first strike. The principle that if we hit them first, they're not going to be able to respond. Which is insane. Yeah, so there were a lot of insane people in the government around JFK at the time. So he de-escalated that again by working through intermediaries. Yeah, so a lot of this to me sounds like JFK, um, not the hawk. This is JFK, the... Yeah, so I think one of the things I want to get across is that JFK was not an angel. He wasn't a perfect figure. 
but he was someone who increasingly became horrified by the prospect of nuclear war. Yeah. He helped engage the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Initially, in 1963, set up covert peace talks with Castro through intermediaries. Funny story about that. The day of his assassination, one of his emissaries, a French uh, journalist, if I remember correctly, or a member of the French government, I forget the exact position, but a French emissary sent by JFK to Cuba to establish a baseline for peace talks was talking to Castro the day JFK got assassinated. When it happened, Castro's first words were, they're going to blame me for this. Yeah. That's what happened. Because immediately after the assassination, not only were there people in the government who believed it, but the CIA was trying to float a plan with an alleged accusation from a guy named Gilberto Alvarado, who was, I believe, uh, an asset of the Nicaraguan intelligence service, which we had set up. Yes. Of course. That reminds me directly of how, like, after 9-11, I imagine Saddam Hussein is, like, watching the shit on TV, like... Like, oh, damn. blame me for this. Yeah. (laughs) You know? But I think there's... Very clear differences between Fidel and uh, Saddam. Oh, yeah. It's the idea of where it was leading. Although it it does, it really reminds me of this project that begins in the 20s in different governments to discredit socialism. This just like, not even almost, this like insane, irrational hatred of... Soviet communism, but socialism more broadly. The business plot. Yeah. And it's like you can see a lot of this building at the end of World War II and at the end of the 40s, where you have McCarthyism and HUAC. And it almost seems like just because JFK was willing to negotiate with Castro and wanted to talk to the Soviets... And also maybe wanted, wanted to end the war in Vietnam. Yes. Yeah. It was another thing where it's like, this is going to not only, like, not only would this break up the CIA into a million pieces, like he said, it also would empty out the coffers of so many defense contractors and war profiteers, big industry people who are fucking, obviously they didn't all sit down in a fucking dark and, you know, shadowy room to say, like, we're going to kill the president, but some of them probably did. You know, like someone obviously did, because the idea that this was all perpetrated by one guy, Lee Harvey Oswald, like it's just ridiculous to believe that with the amount of like circling evidence pertaining to the case. I'm curious, Rob, did you read any of those recent documents that came out? Yeah. Was there anything relevatory in there or did you glean anything from that document dump? that wasn't already inferred because like what I know about this whole thing is what I learned from the Oliver Stone film JFK. (laughs) That is truly the extent of my knowledge. I mean, every time I've heard about JFK conspiracy theory stuff, it's always like sweaty dudes talking fast or like weird podcasts. And I retain nothing. The reason why the JFK film was so powerful for me is because uh, you know, I'm looking at Joe Pesci with ridiculous eyebrows. I'm like, okay, I remember this guy. All right, wig man. So now I know the story just through that ridiculous movie, which I know isn't quite accurate. But anyway, uh, who is Lee Harvey Oswald, and did you learn anything in those those documents? Uh, I mean, saying who Lee Harvey Oswald is is difficult because lots of he was many things to many different people, and still is to this day. Um, the other thing to know about the documents that get released is that it's difficult to sort through many of them because of the way first they're released publicly. Um, they're typically released through the National Archives, and they'll put them online, but. You can't really search the individual PDFs because they're formatted as image files, which is weird. You'd think they'd use OCR in 2023, 
But no, I'm not surprised. Yeah, well, that's you can a, it's sort just of, harder to search for words. Like, yeah. You, yeah. You can sort of Google the words and it'll show up. The memo will show up if you like put the correct, you know, character string in, but you can't actually search in the document itself. So there's lots of stuff in there that's interesting, but a lot of the stuff that has been released um, now and recent, like the last few drops, uh, not particularly useful. There was an interesting fact about um, another assassination, actually, James Earl Ray, his one-time lawyer, Art Haynes, big-time racist, um, ran against integration in Birmingham, was responsible for the escalation of bombings there. At one point, he was a CIA contractor. So there's Surprise. all kinds of weird <laughs> shit that pops up in those. But pertaining to Lee Harvey Oswald, there really wasn't a lot. Well, wait, so their justification for keeping those documents classified for decades is to protect intelligence assets, right? Essentially, yeah. I mean, there's debate over if that's actually what they're doing, but that's the excuse that they use. And with Oswald, there isn't there isn't a whole lot that you're probably going to get at. There's a writer who runs a site, Substack, JFK Facts, Jefferson Morley, ex-Washington Post journalist, who thinks there might be something related to projects known as Amspell and Dreamspell. Amspell was the name of a program set up by the CIA in, I think, the summer of 63, where some of those right-wing Cuban groups based in New Orleans were essentially setting up, you know, protest operations to make it appear like they were, you know, opposed to what was happening with regard to our foreign policy. And we were giving them, I think, something like $25,000 a month for this project. Whoa, in 1963, that's a lot of money. Yeah. That's um, a lot of fucking money right now. They would travel internationally to things, and they continued doing it even after the assassination. But when you realized they were in New Orleans at the same time Oswald was, Oswald travels to New Orleans and sets up a chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. That was a group that was lobbying the United States to ease tensions with Cuba. He set this group up, Oswald did, against the wishes of the actual institution. They didn't know who he was. They wanted nothing to do with him. So this chapter is set up. Oswald is the only member. And he's going out in public, starting fights with this group of people who belong to the CIA by saying he is pro-Castro, he is, you know, the public face of communism. He would try and get his name attached to as much as he could in that period. That's um, so weird. In the same period, he allegedly tries to sneak into Cuba via Mexico City. But the images we have of the guy who is allegedly Oswald from the FBI looks like Ed fucking O'Neill from Married with Children. <laughs> <laughs> to my face well i'd say it behind your back but my car's only got half a tank again <laughs> what my personal theory is is that oswald i think he was working for the government i don't think he knew what he was doing i don't think that he may have been an assassin but i doubt it i think what was happening was he was set up as a patsy because if he would have been able to get into cuba and both the soviet union and cuba were both like who the fuck is this guy we're not letting him into our countries anymore if he would have gotten in and come back and then the assassination happens, it looks like Cuba would have been responsible and that would have justified a full-scale invasion of Cuba. Well, he did go to Russia, right, and live there for a while? Briefly. So he defected from Russia while he was stationed at, I think it's like Mitsune Air Base. It's an Air Force, it was a joint base that had CIA cover. So I think he was a signals operator, if I remember correctly. Yeah. He was working at like a covert CIA base, defects to Russia, well, Soviet Union that era. But when he gets there, the Soviets are like, who, who is this are guy? you? We don't trust you. So they put him <laughs> in some job off somewhere, get him away from people. Apparently when he was in Russia, he was a bit of a playboy, which is funny. To yeah, think. I heard that they like 
gave him a big salary and just hit him. Be, well, because he sort of said like, here's what I did at this base. I can give you information. Yeah. But it seemed like they yeah, gave him, he was a radar technician. Yeah. So we gave yeah. them some like kind of information that they probably could have gotten from other sources already, yeah. but it's debatable what he gave them anyway. Like the idea is they just were like, okay, you're this big operator. And then he gets there and he is a disappointment. So they just kind of shove him off to the side and they're like, okay, you do this thing. We'll pay you. Yeah. Just in, stay out of the way. In like a far, away factory town and he got bored apparently so the other funny thing then is he comes back to the united states he's allowed to defect back after first defecting from the united states this is the part that's so fishy to me is like department gives him money to come back and sets him up in a community of right-wing russian you know expats which is like he's still openly an avowed communist but he's hanging out with people who are openly hostile to the soviet union it doesn't make sense it doesn't make any sense like At a time when they were so hostile to anyone associated with communism. Yes. Like to just like let him come back in. I mean, the the obvious answer or the obvious, you know, conclusion to draw is Is that that he's a plant. Yeah. He's leading kind of a double life as this like pro-communist guy, you know, just so that way he can get to Russia, give them, you know, baby shoes information and hopefully try to leech something better out of them. That was not successful. So he comes back and they're like, okay, we're going to set you up in this different operation down here in New Orleans. And that then leads to the assassination. Well, so it doesn't lead directly there because Oswald was weird in the sense that as an avowed communist, he also carried out an alleged attempt on the life of someone else before Kennedy, a right-wing figure, Edwin Walker an army general. The funny thing about that is, so one of the things that you hear about with Oswald in the official record is that he was, you know, an expert marksman when he was in the Marines. But if you read up on anyone who like knew him in the Marines, they're like, yeah, he was a terrible shot. When he tries to kill Walker, he's, I think like less than a hundred yards from Walker, Walker sitting in his study as a stationary target. Oswald whiffs because allegedly Walker moves at the last second. But if you're a marksman in the Marines and you're that good a shot, how do you miss a stationary target? Not only that, then, how do you go on to shoot a moving target from a couple hundred feet away where it's not clear if you could have pulled that shot off? And even when they tried to replicate it in the late 70s with the House Select Committee on Assassinations, no one could do it. So it's not that the shot could not have happened. It's just that it was so difficult and it isn't clear that Oswald could have pulled it off. Yeah, that imagery of them trying to recreate this shot comes up again and again in in pop culture. Oh, in, yeah. In, in films that deal with the Kennedy assassination. And I, I kind of want to get to some of them. First off, I, I want to look at the American films that came out in the wake of the Kennedy assassination. A lot of them weren't really in the wake because it was such a traumatic and recent event in the U.S. that you weren't seeing it depicted for nearly another decade. And it was in the 70s when this kind of brand of political thrillers were so popular. I I assume they came because of Watergate and everyone wanted to be, you know, all the president's men. Everyone wanted Dustin Hoffman and fucking Robert Redford Redford to, you know, be powerful, strong, sort of moral Americans who believe in truth. But kind of beatnik-y. Yeah. Very interesting character from that time period. And around then is when in that like conspiracy paranoid thriller moment, you get a film like The Parallax View. Uh, yes, we 
Hi, how are you? Senator Carroll, just fine, thank you. Welcome to our city. Since the assassination, six of these people have died in some kind of an accident. There is no evidence of a conspiracy. These people were killed. And whoever killed them is going to try to kill me. Austin thinks that maybe we all saw something up there. We're in the business of reporting the news, not creating it. You've been asking questions about me and things you know nothing about. What I know is I need a good alias and I need a good ID. Who are you? My life is in danger just being here. And whoever's behind this is in the business of recruiting assassins. I think I got some of their entrance exams. Congratulations, Richard. You had some very interesting scores on the first series of tests for Parallax. In a risk situation, I believe you'll go right down the line. Which is such an interesting movie in that it is clearly about the JFK assassination, but it's more so about the idea of the CIA or some shadowy intelligence group recruiting assassins and the kinds of people that they're looking for. Rob, can you tell us a little bit more about the Parallax View and the ways that it kind of mirrors reality or or, <laughs> or, or, or mirrors conspiratorial reality or yeah. what have you? So, I mean, that came out in an era of cinema, New Hollywood, when lots of things were changing. It wasn't even necessarily the first film to address the assassination. There was uh, an Italian film we'll talk about later, but even in the context of uh, American cinema, there were documentaries like Rush to Judgment in 1967, which was an adaptation of a book by JFK researcher and lawyer Mark Lane. And I believe there were other like allusions to it in things, but in 74, Parallax View comes out post-Watergate, and it's one of the first real big American films to deal with the subject in a way where it's accusing someone other than Oswald. So the film is about um, this journalist, Joe Frady, played by Warren Beatty, who was present at the assassination of a figure, Senator Carroll, Charles Carroll. And the assassination itself is kind of an amalgam of both the JFK assassination and then the later assassination of um, JFK's brother, Robert Kennedy. So the way it plays out is interesting because as the film begins, it's the first thing that happens. So there isn't even like a lead up to it. It's just a bunch of people are at the Space Needle in Seattle and we see an assassination occur. And one of the things I want to comment on later is how that plays out versus what happens later in the film. But as we see it, you know, we watch it through a window. We're observers to what's happening just as much as the characters in the film are. Shortly thereafter, I think like three years later, Joe Frady is met by a friend of his, Lee Carter, who was also there. And she's in a panic because she observes that a lot of witnesses have been, you know, suddenly disappearing or been dying. This was a big thing in JFK lore, and it's still big to this day. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about that because I noticed that in definitely in the Parallax view, but in some other films, it seems to be this recurring theme that the witnesses to, let's say, a different version of then the kind of approved sequence of events are dying. And I don't know the answer to this, but I'm sure you will. Is there any real parallel to this? Like did some of the JFK witnesses who saw, you know, 
maybe other shooters or something suspicious actually die? Like, where does that come from? So it is and isn't true. Part of the problem is a lot of people, and this comes up again in the House Select Committee on Assassinations and the Church Committee, is a lot of people who were meant to testify died under mysterious circumstances. Now, when you look at the numbers, I believe Jim Mars, who is a conspiracy writer who wrote a JFK book in the late 80s, Crossfire, he consulted on the JFK movie, if I remember correctly. He estimated, I think, that something like 103 witnesses had died. Well, part of the problem is he also includes natural causes, which is a problem because people die. Yeah, it's people die. And the CIA did have a heart attack gun um, that came out in 75 in the church committee hearings. But I don't think they hit everybody with that. But like, why have a fucking heart attack gun and just be like, yeah, you know, we're going to put this under the bed and we're never going to fucking use it. Like, come on. Does anyone know when the heart attack gun was developed? Well, it was it was a pet pill, a PEP pill was the original thing they had. And that was stuff that they used, I think, imagine during World War II. Yeah, was and that comes up in... It. Okay. But then there was actually a gun which they would use darts with shellfish toxin. That was oh, okay. Legal, and it was supposed to... It was designed to mimic a heart attack. Yeah, and the KGB would do shit like that too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But there are instances where there were people who were connected to the Kennedy assassination who did die under really mysterious circumstances where it was probably directly connected to that that's crazy so like two of the more famous instances and i'll get into a third one that's sort of tangentially related but um the chicago outfit who may have helped jfk win the 60 election and chicago outfit for anyone who doesn't know is italian mob once run by al capone yep so they were involved with the cia around attempts on Castro's life, where allegedly the CIA tried to like kill him on 600 different occasions, if I remember the number correctly. Yeah. That guy can't fucking be stopped. But, uh, well, real quick, I kind of, I wanted to find what the word parallax means and what, what the title of the movie means literally. Parallax, the, the definition is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. For example, through the viewfinder or the lens of a camera. Or someone watching the movie. It's a way that you can also watch movies as well. When, like, say you're putting on a different hat. Not a real hat, but you're putting on your, like, little fucking investigator hat when you're watching Your tinfoil hat. Your tinfoil hat is a perfect example when you're watching something. So you watch it with a different point of view. And the idea of the, of the film The Parallax View is that there were several people who witnessed this killing of a senator or a uh, president. I think it was a, a senator. senator. A senator. senator film. And they all keep dropping like flies. And Warren Beatty is kind of the last one who's left. And he has to find out why. And he's going on this like fucking crazy mission. And the movie's kind of funny at times. Like it's not really a straight thriller. There are times where it feels like kind of absurd. Absurd. Like the, the like, bar fight. It's my favorite scene. It's Don't so touch funny. me unless you love me. It's oh the God. best scene. Favorite line in the movie. It's got no right being that funny. And I think as the movie kind of progresses, then it gets a little bit more tense. And it does this really, really interesting plot shift when Warren Beatty discovers that there is this organization that's kind of connected to this killing. And they're called Parallax, they're right? Called Parallax Corporation. Parallax Corporation. And they have a, not a resume, but a, a job application. A, a test. A test. A personality test that you need to fill out to see if where you will fit in in this company. It's similar to the more extensive psychological evaluation tests you have to take. Like if you're trying to enroll in cognitive behavioral therapy, 
they make you take a similar like two hour long test. And I can talk about that in just a second. Yeah. yeah. But wait, you defining the term parallax, I feel like really ties into Rob answering my question about like, were these people killed or were they not? Yeah. It's sort of this idea of like, if you look at it from this viewpoint, it's just yes. coincidence yeah. and you can't say for sure that they were murdered. But if you look say, at it from this other viewpoint. Yeah. J- just to get in those actual two killings from the Chicago outfit technically three, the leader of the Chicago outfit, Sam Giancana, was murdered before he was supposed to testify, I believe, for the House Select Committee on Assassinations. He had a police detail sitting out in front of his house, yet the guy is able to sneak in, put two in his head, sneak out. Similarly, a guy named Johnny Roselli, who worked for the Chicago outfit, he testified before the church committee in, I believe, June? Is uh, the church committee different from the... House Select Committee? Yes. So to distinguish between the two, in seventy late 74, there was an article that was published in the New York Times by Seymour Hirsch, who is now in the news again because of the Nord Stream bombing. Or he's uh, now not in the news again. Depending on what you believe, yeah. Depending on your position, parallax. Yeah. <laughs> but he published a story in the New York Times on Operation Chaos, which was the CIA's version of COINTELPRO. It came up The following month in January 75, the church committee was convened to investigate all of these crazy things that had been going on in the city. Is it like another Senate committee? It was a Senate committee. Okay. The House Select Committee was a House committee. Now, there was a House committee operating at the same time as the church committee. Oh, my God. So there was a lot of committees and commissions. The Rockefeller Commission came up at the same time. But to get to my point, Roselli testified, and he was supposed to testify again directly on the JFK assassination. Disappears, is found a month or two later, his body is stuffed in a drum, you know, a barrel of oil. Okay, so clearly murdered. Yeah, yeah. he was murdered. Sanjay you don't Kana accidentally find Sanjay yourself. Kana, <laughs> uh, bodyguard was murdered. There were people connected to the assassination who were murdered. Um, the guy who was in charge of COINTELPRO, Bill Sullivan, FBI agent, he depending on what you believe, was either murdered by a mistake in a hunting accident or was shot in the late 70s. Was he shot by Dick Cheney in a hunting accident? Well, so he was <laughs> shot by the son, I think, of a state trooper, and they put the Fish and Game Commission in charge of the investigation because what? the kid who did it said it was a hunting accident. Wow. Even the guy who did the investigation in the 70s, I think he was quoted in 2018 or 2019, he's like, yeah, I don't know, man, I still have questions about that one. So there were lots of people in that era who died under mysterious circumstances who were probably assassinated. Back to the idea of there being some personality test that you can... Oh, yeah, yeah. The CIA actually developed this, really. Was this something that the CIA developed in order to recruit assets or agents? Agents, yeah. So um, there's a great book called The Search for the Manchurian Candidate by a guy named John Marks. He's actually the reason we found everything for MKUltra. Wow. For anyone who doesn't know, that was the government's mind control brainwashing program. Yeah, we'll have to have you back on for another episode about like movies related to MKUltra because that shit is crazy. Well, technically, depending on how you want to look at this, this movie could be an MKUltra movie. Well, okay. yeah, that, that was that was we'll honestly that. what I read it as. Yeah. Because this movie is, at first, it's about this assassination. And the assassination, the way it's shown is there's like a waiter. He's holding a gun. The gun never goes off. And there's another guy maybe like 10 feet behind the waiter. Which is allegedly should... what happened with Sirhan Sirhan, depending on what you believe. But to the point about the CIA personality test, it was developed by a guy named John Gittinger. The test actually became known as um, the personality assessment system. The CIA used it to figure out like 
who's going to be a good agent? We outsourced it to other countries. Um, South Korea used it when they set up their version of the CIA. It was used in Uruguay. They set up an anti-terrorist unit in the 50s or 60s. Um, and it's, the personality um, assessment system is still in use to this Yeah, day. I mean, they use different versions of it for police departments yeah. and all kinds oh, of things. Sure. And it's funny with police departments, like... If you score a little too high on it, nope, you're out. Sorry, we, we want some fucking real lunkheads who got no problem following orders because yeah. it's about compliance, figuring out who 100%. will follow orders. And so, what Warren Beatty's character does is he he gets this test and he brings it to these kind of collegey pencil pushing dipshits and says, <laughs> and they're all in like the sociology department, and he's basically asking them to find out what. Answers need to be given to prove that you are a sociopath. A sociopath, but kind of antisocial. The phrase is antisocial tendencies. Yeah, I think he says at one point the parallax representative. He's like, as you know, parallax receives demands from all phases of industry. Demands for unusual personnel. If you qualify, and we think that you can, we're prepared to offer you the most lucrative and rewarding work of your life. What do you get out of it? We receive a a sort of finder's fee. As I said, the jobs are difficult to fill. How tall are you? 6'2". What kind of jobs are you talking about? I think whatever you're cooking on that stove is burning. You look taller than 6'2". What the fuck does my height have to do with anything? suggest that you have remarkable talents. Yeah, what do you mean by talents? You have difficulty holding on to a job, don't you? I don't know. I just don't like to take a lot of shit so people say I got antisocial tendencies. Right. Tell me, has it ever crossed your mind that maybe it's everybody else's problem that they don't get along with you? Why? Because, you see, the very quality that gets you in trouble is what makes you potentially... Invaluable. What's that? Your aggressiveness. Aggressiveness. Right. I, uh, I don't want to intrude on you while you're reading. But get in touch with me personally, if you'd like to go further. So, it's been a pleasure, Richard. Yeah, so basically what he does is he fills out this... Uh, this questionnaire <laughs> scantron yeah and, <laughs> and he puts in all of the answers that basically lead the uh, parallax corporation to be like oh hey we found a real fucking weirdo here this guy's perfect and warren Beatty just like f- goes through all of the motions to you know get ingrained into this corporation it's the movie kind of loses i think it loses a little bit of steam it isn't as compelling once he's within the corporation they're kind of like giving him this job to do because you know it's going to happen he's going to well they've also it's sort of implied that they've figured him out yeah and i mean he's also even though he tries to get these answers he's also the perfect target to begin with because one of the things that they bring up is he was a journalist who went through a tough spell because of alcoholism he isn't reliable he can't keep a steady job he's exactly the type of person who would exhibit antisocial tendencies and even to a degree he does his character isn't 
friendly to most people. No, and that's why I think the bar fight sequence. Makes so sense. yeah, so it's like he travels to this town where one of the witnesses was allegedly killed. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he gets there, it's the best sequence in the film because <laughs> he goes up to the bar and orders a glass of milk. Oh my purposely god. Purposely to antagonize people. Yes. You know what they say about martinis? They say that a martini is like a woman's breast. One ain't enough and three is too many. <laughs> It's an amazing joke, Gail. Yeah. <laughs> what can I get you? I just have a glass of milk. Okay. You're the healthy cat, huh? Mm. And because he orders a glass of milk, this like sheriff's deputy immediately starts a fight with him. They basically destroy the whole bar, and then the sheriff kind of pretends to befriend him, and it's revealed he's in on the whole thing, yeah. but it just like it shows that he is also prone to violence. Yeah. You know, there for a moment, I thought you were a man. John, are you? No, I'm, I'm a girl. <laughs> well, why don't you go right over there and tell those people that real loud? Don't touch me unless you love me. That line I love so much is, uh, don't touch me unless you love me. <laughs> so good but that character uh that sequence i think is interesting because up until that point i uh, it was in washington and i think he might be a journalist in california or something like that yeah but the way it's set up it looks like he's headed to texas i i think that's supposed to be texas which would be interesting in the context of dallas you know where jfk is shot he goes to the old west to find you know what happened so there's this weird Western yeah. elements. And I guess the idea, sorry to circle back, I know we've been talking about this kind of ad nauseum, that people that were associated with this assassination were getting killed in questionable ways. Uh, the most obvious one is Lee Harvey Oswald, who <laughs> oh, yeah. just got fucking shot on live TV by, you know. Here's some, looking at you, kid. Yeah, by some fucking gangster dressed up like he's in a Which fucking Humphrey Bogart Which is so movie. crazy. And yeah. the, the, the explanation, what's his name, Jack Ruby? Jack Ruby. The explanation that Ruby gave, which is like to protect Jackie Onassis from having to go to trial, is just yeah. wild. Well, but I feel like it's something that really would have tugged at people's heartstrings because the idea of her like climbing on in this like fugue state climbing onto the back of a convertible to pick up parts of her husband's brains it just like the american media were so quick to mythologize that family that yeah the whole thing ruby is an interesting character too because there's another reference in the film which sort of indirectly touches on an aspect of ruby's life that isn't that well known um at one point Warren Beatty goes to see a friend who works in a university and the guy talks about um, how they created a center for the study of violence, which was actually a real thing that existed at UCLA, the center for the uh, center for the study and reduction of violence. This was headed by a former MK ultra. Oh, of course. (laughs) Get this part. Before Jack Ruby went insane in prison, the um, psychiatrist that visited him was Jolly West. And this comes up in the holy uh, shit. Tom O'Neill book chaos about manson possibly being a cia asset or something so was the suggestion that dr west made jack ruby go insane that's what o'neill suggests and it's i don't know you know (laughs) but it's funny how like 
in that era, everyone has some kind of strange connection to the CIA, MK Ultra, all of this weird shit that's happening in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. That's so, so crazy. Even the um, JFK assassination has a weird connection to uh, MK Ultra through Jack Ruby. Moving on, there are over 1.5 million diagnosed paranoid schizophrenics living in America today. Should our healthcare system be doing more to make sure they are safe to themselves and others by watching over them 24 hours a day? Yes, we need to monitor these people to make sure they're safe. Hide cameras everywhere they go, in the street, in their homes, in the eyes of people at the convenience stores where they shop. Cameras aren't really enough, I read though. in a medical journal recently that a number of doctors have already begun to place microscopic tracking devices under the skin of schizophrenics, which is a great way to make sure that they don't get lost. Yeah, and there's right. an article said here. Okay. That doesn't mean I believe that portion of it, but... Well, I, I kind of want to shift gears just a little bit here. So I understand that the Parallax view kind of fits into this, you know, American political espionage paranoid thriller that was really popular in the 70s. Yep. And I recently found out about a few other movies that were not made in the U.S., that were made in other countries that directly tell, or that, that tell the story of the JFK assassination seemingly before America kind of had the gall to do so. And there's a couple of these movies that we're going to talk about, but the first one that I, I want to I hit on is a spaghetti Western yes. called The Price of Power. Secondo il servizio segreto, il pericolo maggiore sta proprio nel Texas. Le concedo 24 ore, signor Pinkerton. Now, I don't think it's a, an amazing, incredible movie. Like, it's really interesting, though. It is so fucking unique. I yeah. can't believe it exists. Is it the first? I don't know if it's the first. I don't know like which movie technically is the first to address the JFK assassination. Well, so it's, this one is for anyone who hasn't seen The Price of Power, it came out in 1969. Yeah, so it was definitely earlier in the cycle. Yeah, and and I mean, The Price of Power is is a movie that's directed by this guy named Ton, Tonino Valeri, who is, he's probably best known for doing uh, the Lee Van Cleef vehicle, Day of Anger. Yeah. Yeah, so. lots of political themes in his movies. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, that happens here because the assassination in this movie is obviously loosely based on the JFK assassination, but it brings in elements of James Garfield's assassination as well. Yeah. It references the Pinkertons who helped, depending on what you want to believe, you're going to have to keep using that phrase, but <laughs> they, they invented more than one assassination plot. We know for certain that they fabricated one for sure. And that comes up in this film, I think. It's, it's a remarkable movie that basically tells the JFK assassination, but does it through the lens of the Andrew Garfield assassination and just like moves all of these proceedings. J James Garfield. Oh, I'm sorry. James Garfield. Andrew Garfield's the actor. Spider-Man, right? Yeah. <laughs> And sorry guys, I didn't assassinate Spider Man. Andrew Garfield is <laughs> Andrew Garfield is still alive and well as far as we know. Do not take this as validation that Andrew Garfield was assassinated. Okay. Uh, so it tells the James Garfield assassination. With the JFK story thrown over. hundred percent. It is yeah. clearly like a one to one ratio, but because it's told by this like Italian film crew that is doing a spaghetti western in that like classic spaghetti western trope way with fucking duels and you know bar fights and all this kind of and shit. like a, a queer coded villain who yeah. is just wonderful it is yeah insanely surreal that this movie even exists and it, it makes a lot of sense though because i think 
there are a number of spaghetti westerns, especially any of the ones, Zapata. any of the Zapata westerns, anything about the Mexican Revolution. The Bullet for the General. Yeah, Bullet for the General is a great example. They all really are about what was going on in Italy at the time, like the years of lead, when you have a lot of high-powered businessmen and politicians being assassinated, kidnapped. And it's, I feel like the way that they made it, that they framed it as the JFK assassination, but because it's a spaghetti Western and they want to set it during the 1850s or I think the 1880s, they needed to then have another time period appropriate parallel What's so fascinating to me about The Price of Power and a lot of these European JFK movies is, to me, anytime a filmmaker makes a film about a particular historical event, it's really also about more present day material. And you could see that all over The Price of Power. You you absolutely can, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact that, I mean... James Garfield has like a motorcade. I mean, so like there's a lot of weird stuff that comes up and that's the first image you see is a burning picture of Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> which, which is, is wild. It's a wild <laughs> thing to do this and it's a great is, is so it's a great image to start politically off politically charged. It's it's a wild wild flick and the I mean, Pinkertons are the villain for once, you yeah, know. And, Thank God. But also the Pinkertons are a clear stand in I think for the CIA because the Pinkertons were one of the very first and earliest examples of an intelligence agency, of yeah. an agency that provides, you know, like a secret service style of protection, but also, you know, dabbles in like secrets and statecraft. And, and like they make shit up. So like what I was yeah. alluding to earlier with those assassination plots, again, as a preface, depending on who you believe, uh, <laughs> the Baltimore plot against Lincoln is figured into uh, like history a lot of people seem to take it at face value but if you actually look into it there's nothing to corroborate that there was a plot against lincoln in baltimore it was possibly invented by alan pinkerton to make himself look better um lincoln himself was quoted to a historian contemporaneously saying he didn't believe it was a plot against his life and there was a plot against his life in baltimore but even more relevant one that we do have for fact is the assassination of the idaho governor frank stunenberg in 1901 there, this was in the midst of like labor wars with miners and all of that, and uh, man, literally just blew Studenberg up. Whoa! The, he was arrested and interrogated by a Pinkerton, James McParland, and the man stated that he was doing it on behalf of radical labor groups. So labor leaders, and I think like the Western Federation of Miners or something like that, they were brought up on sedition charges. Oh, so some real Reichstag fire stuff. Yeah, and it came (laughs) out in the course of the trial that the guy who carried out the bombing was actually an informant for mine owners. And it came out that... Of course. He wasn't acting on the orders of the labor leaders, so they were exonerated. And it looks like maybe the Pinkertons, I don't know if they initiated it, but they definitely induced a false confession. So the idea that this stuff doesn't happen in America, it like it happened a lot, especially well, that's, before the 60s. Yeah, but even like that's some real J. Edgar Hoover FBI shit. And yeah. my understanding of the Pinkertons is that they sort of led to the foundation of the FBI in did, particular, yes. because so, more yeah. so than the CIA, their role was 
kind of law enforcement adjacent. Like you could hire them as yes, detectives. Yes. Well, I guess more so than the CIA because the CIA's mission statement is not to operate within the U.S. Yeah, the CIA is doing external else. enemies. Allegedly. Precisely. But because there's so much fucking information that exists of things that they do here. Yeah. No, but who can say what they really do other than assassinate people? Right. And it's funny here, though, because admittedly pinkerton alan pinkerton was on the side of the union during the civil war now he did um help the spanish government break a slave rebellion in cuba so i don't think he was an abolitionist but the movie is no. <laughs> he here the villains are you know um fernando ray's character fernando, fernando ray's, ray's great character, yeah he's like a businessman right uh no i believe he plays pinkerton like the character's named pinkerton yeah yeah but i think isn't he supposed to be like a pro-slavery businessman who doesn't because it's well, set in so, texas yeah so th the group that's actually responsible for the assassination here is a group of southern businessmen who want to perpetuate and continue slavery sorry yeah. we're, we're talking about the price of power. yeah yeah, price yeah. Of power, okay, yes. okay. not real life not real life I was like, no yeah, no sorry i'm, I'm, I'm spinning around <laughs> we're jumping from <laughs> hit from history back to the price of power <laughs> but yeah it's a small group of southern businessmen which is also weird because of texas's role with slavery where they were initially against it and then for it then they seceded and joined the confederacy so there's a lot of weird shit happening around that subject both in this movie and in real life but again so like what we saw with the parallax corporation it was a business who was responsible not the cia here it's not the intelligence service it's uh Again, a business interest. So a lot of the JFK movies or post-JFK assassination movies are not actually about the government doing it. It's about, you know, factions doing it. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I think that that is in another film that we watched that came out in France. Uh, Much later. Yeah. This, 79. In 79. Oh, wow. I didn't know it was that fucking late. Yeah. yeah shit. This movie is called... I for Icarus. I as an Icarus. I as an Icarus. Well, the word in French is come, which is, is like... I like Icarus. Yeah. yeah. In the movie, they say, I like I Icarus a couple of times. I don't know. Whatever. It's easy to find if you uh, if you go a little digging. This is one that it's basically, it's showing you the Kennedy assassination again. Yeah. In this like kind of fictionalized version of it. And the movie kind of like follows sort of your standard political thriller avenue where it's, you know, someone who is within the government, investigating the government. They had, like, some committee to investigate the assassination. And he's like, yeah, I disagree with their findings. I'm going to carry on this investigation. So it's very, like, straightforward for a while. But what I really want to talk about is about halfway through I as an Icarus or I for Icarus or <laughs> come on, Icarus, uh, <laughs> there is this, this incredible moment halfway through where, like, the proceedings of the film seem to stop when the main character goes to a university that's conducting an experiment. Rob, can you tell us what this experiment was and if it has any basis in, in reality? Well, yeah, I mean, they shout it out at the end of the film. Yeah. And uh, credits. It's based on the Milgram experiments. Uh, Stanley Milgram conducted um, experiments almost identical to what happened in the film. It's where terrifying. He would ask people to shock someone, but the person being shocked was typically an actor or research assistant, and they were trying to test compliance. Can we get people to do things that they would not normally do? This was in the milieu of post-World War II, you know, Hannah Arendt, people trying to figure out why would, why would good citizens just follow orders? You know, little Eichmanns everywhere. So the idea of the experiment was to figure out how can we get average citizens to just follow orders the way Nazis did? So Milgram did these experiments in 
I think the 50s, right? 50s yeah. or the 60s. And he was paying people essentially to see how far he could push them. And this plays out in the movie in almost identical fashion, where the uh, main character, Attorney General Henry Volney, who is a stand-in for the New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison in real life, he goes and meets the scientist who states that their version of Oswald in this film was an individual who participated in this experiment. He read an ad in the paper for $6, come do this fun thing, shows up and loses his fucking mind, you know, as he's trying to cope with these increasingly tense situations where he has to keep shocking a man. And the man he's shocking is an actor, but he doesn't know that. So it looks like he might be killing someone, yet he continues to do it. And the Lee Harvey Oswald stand-in, when they interview him three months later, I think is the time period yeah. in which that happens, he said he would do it because of the authority that he respected, the authority yeah. of the person who was ordering him to do it. He they, wouldn't do it for money. Exactly. He would do it because he respected the authority telling him to do yeah, it. Yeah, they said that if the exact same ad was in the paper but not from a university and they were offering you $10,000 instead of $6, he was says like no, of course I wouldn't do it. You know, I was doing it because basically they were wearing white lab coats. You know what I mean? Yeah. They they looked like real guys. They looked like real official people who, if they tell you to do something, you'd say, oh, okay, sure. You know. Well, and the really fascinating part of that is when he almost kills the guy. I mean, not really, not because really, but, like you yeah. said, it's an actor, but he thinks he's almost killed this guy and has gotten to the highest possible level of voltage. And the two scientists pretend to come down and consult with each other. And because they're not clearly unified in their decision, that's when he says, okay, I'm not going to go through with it. And he clearly says, if you guys had told me without any hesitation, without any confusion, yes, do it, I would have done it. And their response went, so Yves Montan, who is this wonderful French actor who has lots of daddy energy, who's the, the main character. <laughs> when when he's talking to the scientist, he's he's shocked and he says like how many people got this far? And and he says sixty three percent of people are shown to be that compliant, which like the the record of World War Two certainly tracks with that. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's why this movie really really worked for me and really yeah i loved it is because i mean the first hour which was political thriller stuff i thought it was it, it did political thriller a little better than parallax view and i i was enjoying it but it wasn't until this scene when i realized that this movie had so much more to say beyond just intelligence agencies are shadowy and evil and will fucking kill the president well again it's no not an intelligence problem. agency in this one no yeah, it's, it's like not. it's like a faction it's organization like a military faction known yes. as icarus precisely that, that but that there are these like shadowy organizations that will carry out assassinations and there will be government cover-ups yes you know for them so it's like they're working hand in glove but because this movie has something to say about humanity itself about the way that people are willing to do unspeakable acts just because, because they're told because to, they're told and to. they yeah. want to be polite and, and comply. They want not just be polite, but because they actually do respect the authority. They do. They they trust it. They respect it. And in the case of like a university lab coats, 
that's obvious to me. Like it's science. Uh, yeah, I probably would fucking shock someone for a while. I don't, I don't know when I would fucking give up on that experiment. It's it's a haunting notion, I think. Well, I think one of the key points there is that they also remove responsibility from the person doing it at one point. The scientist oh, says, yeah. I take full responsibility. Which, if you read into, yes. uh, you know, I'm not a fan of Arendt personally, but if you read into the story of like Eichmann, a lot of these people would say, well, it, it wasn't me who made the decision. It was someone else. I was just carrying out orders. Exactly. The idea so, that you're removing responsibility for the decision from someone and just saying, do this and you won't get in trouble. People will go through with it. That idea right there is also such a crucial element to how the Nuremberg trials went ahead, which is basically they only tried to target higher ranking Nazi officials because yeah, they were show trials and they were meant to not actually uphold any justice. They just wanted to make some people feel better. And they really underscored this notion that if you're given an order and you carry out something, however horrific, even if it's literal genocide, you can't get in trouble because you were just following an order. Some of the biggest criminals there, like Kurt Blome, who was in charge of the Nazi biochemical program, he never went on to off. South America. Well, so he worked for the CIA. Yeah, like, in they, South America. They set him up in West Germany, and then I believe he moved to South America. But, you know, a lot of the people who were supposed to actually be tried, it's like, no, we're not going to do that. No, and a lot yeah. of... A lot of like higher ranking Nazis were just folded back into West German society. Oh yeah. yeah. But if you want to get on to Gladio, the the one thing I did just want to say about, I think why the film plays out as it does is because the director Henri Vernet is somebody I, whose work I really like. He's done a lot of great thrillers and crime movies. He worked with people like Jean-Paul Belmondo a lot, but He, you know, is mostly known as a French director, but he's Armenian and grew up in Armenia and he and his family fled the country when he was a child to escape the Armenian genocide. And so I think a lot of his films have these kind of political elements folded in. And with this one, it just like I I know, Charles, you said this earlier, how it's like the first half is this really compelling look at the JFK assassination But then it becomes this whole much more complicated thing about the legacy of World War II. And in the case of France, especially the legacy of the Algerian War, where French soldiers, like, it's kind of this similar thing where you have this group of French soldiers who are basically kind of going against what the government says, and they're torturing Algerians, often by electrocution. They're torturing other French people because those French people are against Algerian liberation. And so it's it's almost this weird, like, really beautifully stylistically shot essay on the developments of the last four years. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting about all of the films is they situate the JFK assassination into the context of the period in which they're made. So um, the price of power, like you were saying, could also be about the years of lead. Um, oh, for Parallax sure. view could be about Watergate. Um, and this film could be about everything that was happening in France with uh, Algeria at the time as well. So they all use the JFK assassination as a vehicle to be about something else. Precisely. They're a way for the culture writ large to be able to digest that information, that like shocking information of like, not only are you being lied to and betrayed, and betrayed but it's fine. 
And you have no power, yeah, but you you just you have really to roll do, with like, it. That's just the way it is. And and I think that's why when things like this happen now, like let's say like there was a, a major, like say someone got assassinated now in the government. Like Bernie Sanders would like be Bernie the obvious Sanders. candidate. Yeah, I mean, they fucking shot him with a heart attack gun a couple of times, but that old man keeps on fucking getting up. Uh, but I mean, like, let's say there was that kind of thing now, and then it immediately comes out like, oh, hey, yeah, the CIA was involved. There was a cover up. Like everyone would just like, shrug and be like yeah of course there was gives a shit like what else you got it, it has no real cultural impact and i think that's why like those breathless like older boomers who have explained to me all of the moving parts of the jfk assassination like i was like yeah i know dude the government's evil like what are you so shocked about like that's why the oliver stone film jfk the thing that's so cringy about it is that like the whole time it's so breathlessly shocked like can you fucking believe <laughs> like we are in america how could this happen <laughs> can you believe it and it's just like yeah you fucking rube the truth is the most important value we have because if the truth does not endure if the government murders truth if it if we cannot respect the hearts of these people and this is not the country in which I was born in, and it's certainly not the country that I want to die in. American exceptionalism is a powerful concept. A lot of people believe America is God's blessed country, you know, that we are incapable of being corrupted, or that the United States will not be broken by any power, foreign or domestic. So yeah. the idea of all of these films ultimately being about something else, but also the JFK assassination, is because the JFK assassination has touched every aspect of American culture since it happened. I mean, even the idea of a mass murderer, you know, mass shootings that oh, we have yeah. today, it's all directly traceable to the fame that Lee Harvey Oswald was supposedly seeking. So many people now write manifestos because they're mass shooters, and they're really just, you know, doing Lee Harvey Oswald cosplay, depending on yeah. how you want to look at things. One question, something that I noticed is that the parallax view and I as an Icarus have basically the same ending Yeah, where it's like somebody has uncovered all this evidence. It's very clear what's going on. They even know in the case of I as an Icarus, who is to blame and who is sort of pulling the strings. Mm -hmm. And in both movies, it ends where the person becomes aware that there is another political figure who's going to be assassinated. And then at the end of the movie, they themselves are killed. But the fact that that doesn't happen in Oliver Stone's JFK, it's like, why do you think that is? Well, so he was... Stone was making JFK in response... He was trying to make a historical biography. It's obviously historical fiction. But the other films are openly works of fiction. Um, I as Nicarus begins with a Boris Vianne quote, a surrealist French writer. Yeah, Boris Vianne is great. It states literally, this story is entirely true since I entirely imagined it. So the idea is that, you know, these are works of fiction using the JFK assassination as a vehicle, whereas Stone's film, which is no less a work of fiction than these movies, was using information from a lot of researchers and a lot of the information is now wrong, like the gay thrill killing part specifically, but he was trying to make something that was situated within the context of, you know, JFK at that time. One of the interesting things about that though, for as much as the movie JFK gets wrong, it's actually responsible for a lot of why we know about the assassination today, because of that, the Senate 
Congress in general, they passed the JFK Records Act in 1992. And that led to the AARB, the Assassination Records Review Board, where they declassified all kinds of crazy information. So we know more about Operation Mongoose. We know about Operation Northwoods, which was literally going to be something where the CIA was going to approve false flag attacks in the United States, again, to blame Cuba. Yeah, I think And JFK shot that down, by the way. Again, another Cuban connection. The most compelling bit I think either, I mean, from that film and, and like kind of what it portrays, JFK, I mean, the, the Oliver yeah. Stone film, is is the ending trial scene when they do play this Apruder film. And, and it's it, brutal. This is parodied in, in Seinfeld classically in, in the spitting episode when I think George Costanza gets, or Kramer gets spit on outside of a Mets game. But anyway, it, it's the back and to the left, back and to the left. And when they're showing Kennedy's fucking shattered head hit concrete, his like head going fucking back into the left. It's impossible for that to be anything but someone from a different vantage point shooting. shooting. Yeah. And because people on the ground were saying they heard upwards of six shots ring out yep. and saying, I saw smoke coming up from behind that fence. Yep. You know, there's all of these different accounts that it's just like anyone who thinks there was one shooter and th- it's just insane to think. <laughs> Like, it, sure, it, you're gonna make some of your fans angry with that. No, one. it's it's fucking nuts. I mean, like, or, or, or rather, not to think there's only one shooter, but to think that the one shooter came from the book depository. Yeah, you know, like that just it, it doesn't compute. And well, I think that uh, the movie does lay out that bit of evidence so compellingly. Like, sure, there's lots of other crazy stuff going on with, like, you know, masked orgies and fucking crazy. Uh, and shit. yeah. And but, Tommy Lee Jones being the greatest part of the movie. Yeah, honestly, like, <laughs> if you're going to have a homophobic character who's like this effeminate gay... He's so good. ...from uh, New Orleans, you hire Tommy Lee Jones. The man's going to fucking knock it out of the But park. the funny thing you say about it being insane, our own government technically came to the conclusion there was conspiracy because in the late 70s, there was the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which ruled there was a conspiracy in the JFK assassination. Uh, now... Some of that was undone in the early 80s as they did other further committees to purposely paper over some of the findings at that um, House Select decision. But this is something that, you know, even our own government at one point was like, yeah, it's crazy to believe this. We don't believe it. Yeah. Um, okay. So that leads me to my next question. The next question. What do you think actually happened? With JFK? Yeah. I think personally it was a combination of intelligence with maybe mafia assist. That's may have been why you know johnny roselli got stuffed into a drum why sam giancana you know caught some bullets in the back of the head that's why a lot Jack of people Ruby died. stepped up to the plate and fucking took out the guy who had all the information that yeah could bring so down i, the I do think there was yeah. personally i think there was an intelligence connection that's my personal belief and i think it's primarily around all of the issues with cuba yeah i mean that checks out for me <laughs> i'm glad <laughs> yeah. you're just like yeah that's fine yeah i I think it also leads me to two related, more important questions, which I'm just going to ask them both at the same time because I see them as linked. So number one, what is the real legacy of his assassination? And number two, what is this, what is the legacy of Oswald and this idea of intelligence agencies hiring these violent fringe assets and then kind of provoking them yeah and before you answer that i want to add on to that second part of your question that the cia what they're known to do is going into foreign countries 
and manipulating their governments in order for us to better extract their resources. It's a means for us to do imperialism without having standing armies in a country. It's about fucking twisting the right arms to extract resources. And when the CIA does that in the U.S., I mean, obviously, the resources that are here, the natural resources, you know, the streams and the trees and the oil in the ground, those are ours to exploit. The only natural resources for the CIA to exploit at home intelligence yeah are, humans are, are people yeah are people are these antisocial people perhaps or just people who they can mold and put a gun in their hands and have them stand in the right place at the right time to either carry out an act or to appear to carry out an act so that way uh, yeah. yeah if if we <laughs> if if we have time for this maybe in a happy hour episode i want to talk about things like charles starkweather and sort of yeah. spree killers but, but, hey, well but, so i have a different question yeah, I have a different opinion on serial killers. But um, to that point, I mean, so one of the things people always ask is, why aren't assassinations happening anymore? Yeah, that that's also my Part question. Of the problem is we do and don't know about these things. We know that government agencies are likely involved in assassinations abroad. Recently, it was revealed that with the assassination of the Haitian president, like two years ago, the people who were responsible, a group of Colombians, were trained by the CIA for other purposes, obviously. Uh, one of, of the course. people involved in organizing it was an FBI informant, and the FBI cut ties with him after they found out he was involved in the murder. So like, <laughs> these things still happen abroad. We're still probably doing them. I, I have no doubt about it. It's just one of the things you have to look at is the political period in which it was happening. So initially, there was the JFK assassination. You then, over the course of the 60s and early 70s, have a string of movement leaders who are taken out. Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Fred Hampton. We know in at least one case, Fred Hampton, uh, his murder was connected to the FBI because their informant, William O'Neill, probably drugged him with either fentanyl or cecobarbital that night. He gave um, the Chicago Police Department a map of Hampton's house. Uh, apartment. And when the Chicago Police Department went in, only one shot was fired off by members of the Panthers, and it was upward because it was clearly in response to being fired upon. So the FBI definitely murdered Fred Hampton. They probably were involved in the assassination of Malcolm X. Recently, two members of the Nation of Islam were exonerated because the FBI and the New York Police Department had been hiding evidence. So these things happened in a period of intense struggle and intense uprisings. The civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, gay liberation, Chicano pride, all of these things were happening throughout the United States. And you had these powerful figures, men like Malcolm X, men like Martin Luther King, men like Fred Hampton, who were going against capitalism, who were openly advocating for, if not communism, socialism in America. And that was a powerful condition under which you needed to remove people. And that's not something we have today. Exactly. I think that's exactly what you're getting to, is that that's something that we do not have today. That the reason why the CIA are not fucking icing out any politicians in broad daylight anymore domestically is because... They're not there. They're not there. There is no threat to the power of capital. There is no threat to the U.S. government. Well, there is so... like 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 the fucking stuff with like those Trump people. Like, or, or, like <laughs> no, seriously, like that is fucking baby shoes. That's fucking nothing. What, you don't think they killed Chris Cornell to stop the pedo alliance? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, like, like I'm saying, like, there's no need to fucking take out Trump for going against the fucking well. So government I, I would because... disagree there. In at least two instances, um, Darren Seals, who was an activist in Ferguson around the Ferguson protest, 
I don't know if it was the CIA. I don't think it was them. But in the wake of those protests, he became a very public figure. He asked people in Ferguson to vote against Democrats and vote for Republicans as a sign that the black vote would not be taken for granted. He was found murdered, to, uh, shot in the head in a burning car. Yes. Shortly thereafter, another uh, another Ferguson activist, DeAndre Joshua, was found with a bullet in the head in a burning car. There are probably like at least six mysterious deaths of activists at Ferguson. Um, there was the Antifa dude, Michael Reinhold, who who got gunned down by U.S. Marshals. That was an assassination. Now, there's disputes over whether he was working for an intelligence agency and they were covering it up, or if they did it just because people wanted blood. But what happened with that was U.S. Marshals rolled in, Reinhold was in his car, he did not pull a gun, and U.S. Marshals began firing. Trump himself celebrated it by saying they went in not wanting to arrest him, and 15 minutes later it was over. So yeah. assassinations do happen. This they just don't true. happen on the scale yeah. that they used to because that, we don't have those figures anymore. Exactly. Like they are never going to get that close to the levers of power because they're either going to be compromised in the cradle, basically. It's just like they're, they're not going to even let them get that close. Yeah. And people, like we were joking earlier, like Bernie Sanders, I mean, anytime he's ever gotten close, either the system around him basically coalesced to shut his whole fucking thing down they did it twice in yeah i succeed in 2020 I, mean, I would argue in 2020 they hit him with that heart attack gun in fucking february i don't know if they hit him with the heart attack gun but there's definitely the iowa caucus where um the company that they hired to do the polling to handle the um votes uh what was it shadow inc is the fucking name where it was. Wow. it's like come on <laughs> it was uh, it was a democratic contractor they purposely redesigned the app at least twice before the actual voting occurred so they rat fuck bernie they didn't need to kill him because they rat fucked him. Yeah. Yeah. And we still like right now, I feel like we are in that early seventies come down period that many people were in at the same time. These types of movies were being made because if you look, there isn't a viable left. There was just an anti-war protest in Washington, DC, and it was primarily right wing chuds who were uh, responsible for it. Like literal LaRoucheites and shit. So do you think the CIA won? I don't think like that was something that came up on the True Anon episode. And at the time, um, Brace was like, yeah, they won. And I sort of agreed with him. But like, I do and don't agree because I think even within the 60s, you can find these moments of like dislocation or rupture where people individually won. The Berrigan brothers, who were part of the Catholic peace movement, were directly responsible for saving thousands of young men's lives by burning draft cards. They were responsible for inspiring the uh, Citizens Committee to investigate the FBI to break into the Media Pennsylvania field office that revealed COINTELPRO. Afini Shakur um, showed yeah. like, that the FBI and the poli- New York police had framed the Panthers. So there are these moments where you can find success, even in the assassination of someone like Darren Seals. He was someone who became like a very public figure around this issue at the time that it occurred. That issue has not disappeared, even though people have tried to put it down. During the 2020 protests, it was very clear that different police departments and intelligence organizations were instigating violence. Here yeah. in Philadelphia, they did, for example. But the thing is, though, is what's crazy, what, what those protests did show was that like you can get in the streets and you can literally beat the police. You can beat them. <laughs> I'm serious. It showed that there is a power in a mass of people yeah. being in the streets who are fucking pissed. And yep. like literally, like the police were so defeated that you can walk into any fucking Walgreens in Philadelphia and, <laughs> and walk out for days. Well, like like because everywhere, like all over the city, 
like they were at heel. Like it showed that we could beat them. And I don't know if they were at heel though. My personal opinion there is in many cases they let that happen. Like the um the Yeah, so they could spin it. The police department that uh the police building that burned down yeah. in Minneapolis. That was because the local government was just like, yeah, pull out, let it happen. And it was, I think, a boogaloo boy who was partially responsible for setting it on fire. Um, in Denver, the FBI had an informant who was literally trying to do like 70s COINTELPRO shit by creating, you know, fake Maoist factions to build up his resume so he could try and get people to buy guns and take guns to protests. The police in Seattle fabricated a plot where they said the Proud Boys were going to be coming in on a protest. And immediately after, guns started popping up in the uh, CHAZ, the temporary autonomous zone that was set up. So I think in a lot of instances, um, like where violence occurred, it was because it was allowed to happen. They thought it would be like a cathartic moment, and it really wasn't because we're still dealing with it. And I don't know if that would be Watts in 65 or something later, but I feel like more is to come. I'm not entirely convinced that you're right on that front. <laughs> I, I, I mean, like we're in a parallax I, here. I mean, obviously, it's a panopticon thing. Like, you're you're constantly in fear of this big brother, this big other, this big government that is all powerful. And I think it's that fear that gives them so much of their power. And that, like, there are times when they are fucking brought to their knees, when police stations burn, when you know they get fucking beaten, you know, and it happens. And yeah. to say that it that they let it happen. That 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 it doesn't actually happen. I think that that just kind of plays into their hand of being this fucking all-seeing panopticon eye. And honestly, like there is a way that you can poke them in the eye and they won't be able to see for a little bit. Well, so part of my point there is that they let it happen because it would justify further violence by police. So here in the Philly Philly area, they have still denied that chemical uh, tear gas, chemical agent. I watched that. I watched it. So it was used on the first day of protests on May 29th, but the official version to this day, only holds that I think it was first deployed in West Philadelphia on June 1st. And then the following day, when they were pelting people with gas can- uh, tear gas canisters, where I was there both times tear gas was used. I was tear gassed. Yeah, I remember watching a fucking, uh, a little, like, bomb. Like, this, like, fat fucking pig was in a tank, and he pops out the fucking top, like, in a cartoon, and he shoots this fucking bomb at the ground. Yeah. My friend is like, don't worry, guys, it's just a flashbang. And he, like, runs up to it and, like, regroups in the spot. And then a second later, his eyeballs are, like, falling out of his head. And, and like, someone's coming by with, like, a hot cup of milk to pour in his face. And he's like, get that fucking milk away from me. <laughs> it was actually not funny. It was pretty traumatizing. Yes. But uh, anyway, I got one more question for you. Have you are, are you going to see the new Ant-Man movie? <laughs> I haven't seen a a Marvel movie since fucking the first Black Panther, which was fine. But they did do a conspiracy thriller, that second um, Captain America movie, which is a piece of shit. Civil War. But they're going in the quantum realm, man. Come on. No, it was uh, Winter Soldier. Oh, oh, where they stole the Winter Soldier. Actual, like, Vietnam era group, the Winter Soldier Organization and the Winter Soldier Investigation. And they fucked it up. Because now, if you go on Google and you look up Winter Soldier, it's fucking Marvel and not (laughs) our government. You you look up Black Panther shit, it's fucking cartoon movies and shit. Yeah. Oh, man. We got to get you to come back on in our Marvel episode. Absolutely. No. All right, Rob, do you have anything you want to plug, anything you're working on, anything in the pipe? Well, so I do want to make one last point. I think that because we were talking about like what's the lasting effect of this. Yeah. I think one of the things that comes up, there's a great book by uh, she was a journalist. and I think now she teaches at Penn. Her name is Barbie uh, Zelizer. She covered like the idea of 
how people covered the JFK assassination. And her book is called Covering the Body. And one of the points that she makes is that this conflict that we see between mainstream journalists, which almost uniformly reject the JFK assassination and outside bodies, is that there's this constant fight over um, journalistic authority, who gets to tell stories, how they're told, and who certifies what is accurate and what is not. And I think that this is partially done through narrative, and this is a point she makes. So rejection of the JFK conspiracy, especially at the time, was a fight between establishment journalism and underground papers, which had popped up in cities, campuses, all kinds of places around the country. And you're seeing it again today with the internet. So the lasting legacy of the JFK assassination is a war for truth, like who gets to decide what is true and what is not. And you can say things like, well, we've researched it. There are facts. Yeah. But it depends on who is allowed to present themselves as an authority. Precisely. And it's funny how you mentioned that. And to do research for this episode, I classically did a deep dive by typing in JFK into Google and clicking on the Wikipedia page. There. <laughs> you know, I do a lot of dogged research for this show. And But what was so funny to me was that like in the very first paragraph on the JFK assassination, it basically says like, uh, it states with factual authority that Lee Harvey Oswald shot him from the book depository. Yeah, yeah. case closed. Shots. Like, that was literally what it says. And, like, so your argument for, like, truth and what is truth, what is truth is the official narrative. Because yes. that is what is metastasized by such a large group of people that but it's like are. the winners write history, correct? Yeah. So oh, our understanding yeah. of history is in the words of Zealous, are narrated and controlled largely by American media because they're the ones who are responsible for certifying yeah. what is and for is not true. For fucking now. And that's not to say that you should not, you know, read the news, not that you should not follow things. It's just that the idea that mainstream media is the final word on a subject isn't something I agree with. No, it's completely wrongheaded. I mean, yeah. I was raised with my grandfather oh anytime i would come home and say oh i read blah 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 he would immediately say what are the sources yeah and i i think that is something that's so missing from a lot of american education is you can't read a textbook and take things at face value yeah like especially not if you're in texas or florida just take your ivermectin and shut the fuck up exactly (laughs) all right all right let's leave things there uh Rob, do you have anything that you want to plug? Anything coming up? I have that article you mentioned in Cream. If you haven't subscribed to Cream, do so. It's about how the CIA stole money from CCR. But you can find me on Twitter as well, where I'm just a maniac. Yeah, what's your what's your Twitter handle? How do they find you? How do we find you? It's at Robert Scavarla. So you're going to have to figure out how to spell that yourself. Yeah, <laughs> good fucking luck. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, and follow Rob at, on Instagram at Mondo Americana. And your website, uh, can I say that? Yeah. No, I was just like, I don't really use Instagram, so don't follow me on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, but you have a, a website, mondoamericana.com. Dot com. It's awesome. Your last article, uh, what was the one I just read? About the FBI and COINTELPRO? Yeah, That's the yeah, most yeah, recent yeah, yeah. One. But no, no, it was about um, right-wing socialism. Oh, yeah, it's the same one. Oh, awesome fucking article. Yeah. Yeah, great FBI stuff. FBI op for right-wing socialism. Yeah. Sam, do we got anything we want to plug? I don't know. What yeah, do what do you guys do? Yeah, what do we fucking do? I don't even know. We, based on when this episode comes out, so my brain always has to juggle, like, what did I just work on and hasn't been announced yet? I guess we could just plug again the Made in Hong Kong box set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same old story. Patreon, whatever. 
Yeah. Subscribe to the Patreon. Yes. Thank you. If you're not doing so already, even though you're listening to this podcast. Yeah, I may have said this last episode, but the only reason I have a Patreon at all is because Rob bullied me for like two years. Yes. <laughs> hey, pay the writer. He shoved you in a locker and said, you're worth more than this. In an oil drum. Yeah. Where, where I died. <laughs> Damn. Yo, thanks for coming on. We'll have you again real soon. Hell yeah. Uh, Marvel movies. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. See you later, everybody. Like a dry dancer, soaking up rain, soaking up sun.